Hello, and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast, where we talk about the intersection of technology with the fascinating and fun worlds of sports and entertainment. Today, uh, we are going to take the investor's view of the sports and entertainment industry, and we have a very distinguished guest to uh, take us through that. But first, I would like to quickly welcome my co-host for this podcast, the CEO, founder, grandee, grand vizier, and uh, general brain box behind Sportsloft, Charlie Greenwood. Welcome to the Sportsloft podcast. That title seems to get grander every time I do do try to add on every time. It makes it more fun, doesn't it? You, you do it very well. Good work. <laughs> we're here to uh, we're here to grill um, a good friend of Sportsloft, even if he has not yet been on the on the podcast. We're very excited to be joined by Paul Hurrigan, who is the uh, who is a partner at Ryan Sports Ventures, uh, and who's here to talk about what investors are looking for in this market, the uh, a view of the current market, how Ryan Sports Ventures operates, uh, and just generally dive into the mindset of, of an investor in the sports space. So, Paul, welcome to the Sportsoft Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel like I'm in the shadow of giants here with, with Mr. Charlie Greenwood, the infamous. <laughs> in- <I> mean, <laughs> the trouble is, if you end up standing next to Yanni, then you really know you end up being the shadow of giants. <laughs> For, for for context for the listeners who may not have uh, have have met me, I'm six six, uh, which is what Charlie's referring to. Uh, but uh, but very much what I what I make up for in stature, I lose in intellect. So uh, so it it kind of balances out very nicely. Well, just just a little bit before we dive into the details, just a little bit about Paul and about Ryan Sports Ventures. So Paul's a partner at RSV, which is the sports investment arm of the Ryan family, who are Chicago based and who have a broad uh, sports portfolio, including interests in the Chicago Bears of the NFL, Bournemouth FC, and uh, several leading sports technology funds. We'll talk about all of that. And Paul's previously served as CEO of Global Rugby Ventures, which we will also be talking about and looking forward to, and led the marketing efforts at Coca-Cola. I've heard of them. Uh, negotiating major sponsorship deals in in football, motorsports, golf, and and a bunch of others. Um, and Paul is originally from the UK, but now lives in sunny Los Angeles and is putting us to shame. You can't see this, but we can, with a beautiful sunny background with uh, blue skies and white clouds in uh, in what I can only assume is Southern California. So, Paul. As you know, we start the podcast every time by asking for uh, our guests' favorite sports moments of the past week. So we'll toss it over to you to give us uh, to give us your most exciting moment of the week. Yeah, so we were, we were supposed to uh, record this last week, and I was kind of scrambling for my favorite moment. Luckily, a weekend has passed because of uh, my scheduling problems, but now I've got a plethora to choose from. I mean, <laughs> the Bears won on Thursday night. Uh, Northwestern, uh, Coach Braun has just done an absolutely phenomenal job there. Uh, the first coach in, uh, to, to win five games in, in, in his first season in 100-plus years for Northwestern, obviously overcoming tremendous adversity. And, you know, the, the team, the, the staff have just have overcome so much in, in this last six months. Um, and to, to put the season together that they have and that massive win over the weekend, you know, that could very easily be my sports moment of the week. Unfortunately, though, Bournemouth beating Newcastle 2-0. How is that not <laughs> big Dom with a brace? That has to be my sports moment of the week. Uh, just a phenomenal result. Uh, a little bit unexpected, um, but, but very welcomed. And just the, the, the thing that I love the most, I mean, you get those wins sometimes where you feel a bit lucky and you feel like you've kind of uh, cheated the game a little bit. 
this one the, the 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 they came out full of grit i mean just from the first moment and uh yeah really really proud of of the performance they put out there a couple of su- surprising Premier League results at the weekend, and despite being expressly forbidden from doing so, I am sure that Charlie's sporting moment of the week is going to be very similar. I can't imagine what you're talking about, Yanni. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I wouldn't dare list as a sporting moment of the week being 1-0 down, going into, I think it was the 91st minute, and then winning 2-1. Um, I was actually watching it at home. Wolves came back from 1-0 down against Spurs, uh, with... Just, just to, just for the context for everybody listening, that is Wolverhampton Wanderers, not the Minnesota Timberwolves, playing against Tottenham Hotspur, not <laughs> the San Antonio Spurs. Wolverhampton Wanderers of the Black Country in the middle of England, uh, absolutely. Um, and I was watching <laughs> at home uh, with uh, my two boys, and uh, was when the first goal went in, I actually jumped up and hit my hand on the light, which went send the light absolutely flying around which the kids were not too happy about but obviously i wouldn't want to mention that as being my sporting moment of the week because i was expressly told not to um so i haven't got another one that was that was it (laughs) (laughs) well some fantastic results and congratulations to both of your teams charlie actually i've never asked you this your your boys have grown up in london are they wolves fans or not um i am doing my absolute utmost to make sure that they are uh my eldest has slight man city leanings but that's largely because they win lots um right. and uh i am keeping them away from being chelsea slash arsenal slash tottenham uh but they have been indoctrinated i think both of them turned up at their first football sessions when they're about two wearing full wolves kit um uh, as well and i i don't think they listen to the podcast but um i wouldn't want to suggest what i might be about to buy them for christmas uh as i got an email from the wolves club shop this afternoon so uh <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure you benefit from multiple discounts at this stage. I didn't have a chat about that, but no, I don't. <laughs> Let's get into it. And Paul, I gave a little bit of an, uh, an introduction there, but why don't we hear in your own words, what is Ryan Sports Ventures all about and, and kind of give us the 10,000 foot view of what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, uh, dedicated investment arm of the, the Ryan family to invest into sports, predominantly sports technology, but we have three verticals, so sports properties meaning teams, leagues, competitions, sports tech that we kind of break down a generic term into two more generic terms of fan engagement and high performance. And then the third vertical is content and media. And the, the thought process was when we were, when the, when the family was thinking about creating Ryan Sports Ventures and we're sort of ideating on what it could be is really creating a true portfolio where each of those components can actually interact and, and help accelerate um, the others. And so that's that's the, the thesis that we had going in. I think it's worked fairly well so far. We have not made any content or media investments to date, but uh, stay tuned as there are some on the horizon. But the others, uh, you know, the, the Black Knight football investment, which includes uh, ownership of, of AFC Bournemouth behind Bill Foley's group, and then also an interest in FC Laurent, and then also there's a, a third team being added to the portfolio shortly. So, you know, really looking to build that multi-club structure. And that's been extremely helpful for sports technology companies uh, and vice versa. But I, I know we'll get into that, so I don't want don't to ruin some of the fun. <laughs> Well, it's it's fascinating to have so many verticals, right? And it's quite it's quite rare for a um, fund, 
a fun structure to be looking at different verticals. Normally you'll see either somebody like, you know, uh, a fund looking at rights, uh, whether you're talking about leagues or teams or, you know, um, sort of those traditional uh, investments or one looking at technology or, you know, one looking at media. You guys sort of play in all of those fields. So how do you, how do you garner the expertise and how do you look at each one of those different, um, different verticals? How do you look at them differently? And I feel like our investment committee may have uh, gotten to you and seeded this question in advance because it was a it was a big topic of discussion when we were first forming, and it's been a topic of discussion since. You know, and one of our IC members, I think, quite correctly gave us caution to having more than one major and said the people that do very well in the investment space, and obviously the family. I mean, we can go into more detail as we go on, but sort of the the titans of of industry, right? I mean, they they have seen everything from an investment perspective that that is out there, um, just the experience level, either serving as trustees for a major university in, in the United States or running public companies. I mean, just sort of the, the knowledge base that they have is, is truly incredible. And so their feedback of the people that have done very well historically are people that have done one thing exceptionally well. And they gave us sort of the analogy of wanting to be the first or second call. So when an investment opportunity comes up, who are the people that they call in that space, either the first call or the second call, and getting yourself to that level is typically the people that do well. I think sports are very unique. Often people you know, say that about their individual niches, but I do think that sports are a unique animal in how small the actual ecosystem is. I also think the interplay between the pieces within sports is fairly unique. And so, again, predominantly, we are a sports tech investment vehicle. However, there are natural crossovers and correlations between not only the, the businesses behind each of those three verticals, but also the people, more importantly, right? If you look at what David Blitzer has, has created across his Bolt investments, what the 49ers and Jed York and, and that organization, there's such massive overlap and intersection between sports ownership, sports technology, and media, that not only does the subject matter intersect, but the people who are involved in those intersects. And we, we felt like it was kind of natural to, to, to look at an expanded portfolio. Again, we all come from pretty diverse operating experience. We're not deal guys. We've all spent large portions of our careers working on deals, but we're actually more operators. So I've worked for, I founded a startup company. I've worked at you know, a major brand, Brian has brought, you know, a lot of the, the data and analytics tracking to market uh, in the U.S. Rob has worked on, you know, novel technologies in the, in the sports performance space uh, and in the health space, as well as, you know, running other several successful businesses. So we all bring this sort of pretty diverse operational experience that I think gives us the ability to be flexible between those three verticals. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but uh, it's it's definitely a hot topic on our end. It's really interesting, right? And and do you go into it with? I mean, you must go into it with different level of expectations on return, right? Because you're going to see a different level of of of, of return or projected return from an existing Premier League football club uh, versus a standard. Or standard is the wrong word. Nothing standard, but you know, versus a um, new. Te, um, sports technology venture investment at either, you know, Series A or something like that. You know, you're talking about percentage growth versus multiple 
growth, right? So how do you how do you square that or how do you look at that? Because the absolute numbers may be quite similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a different approach in how you get there, right? No, it isn't. I think one of the things that was most appealing when we had, you know, when we first came to market, we saw a lot of the Premier League teams that were transacting at the time. Um, and we've been approached by, you know, clubs all over the world to invest. I think one of the things that we like the most about the Black Knight opportunity, and specifically AFC Bournemouth within that, is it really was a sort of somewhat of a startup um, from Bill Foley in that there wasn't much there at the club at the time that they acquired it. From a player perspective, he's really had to go out to market and and get a lot of new players in. Uh, And he's talked pretty openly about sort of the cupboards being bare when they they actually got into the house. Um, And then on the commercial side, there was just a lot that hadn't been done from a commercial perspective. So even though it is a Premier League team at the you know the highest level in, in British football, there's still sort of so much work to be done um, that it felt like we had more of an opportunity to actually get involved and help build it. And as a result, both from the entry price and also sort of where we think naturally the increase in performance can be from a commercial perspective, on top of where we think the Premier League is going to go, we felt like we were able to model out more of a venture-like return. Although you're right, it's, it's, it's a fairly different uh, growth case. I think that's the advantage too of having, having a single source of capital. So the fact that we are not a fund, mm-hmm. the family has been you know, fantastic in that they've given us the flexibility to look at these investments and build a business case for them. And if it's a good business and it's a good investment, and ultimately if we're backing the right people, mm-hmm. then they feel confident to give us the flexibility to, to look across those three verticals. Paul, have you have you noticed when obviously, you know, there's a lot of funds in the sports space and when you're sort of talking to, you know, other contemporaries at uh, different funds, have you noticed that you've actually been able to have a, a let's say, better uh, operating model as a result of just having that single source of capital versus some of the, maybe the restrictions um, that some of the funds have and vice versa? Do you think, do you look at some of the funds and go, actually, that gives them an advantage in other areas uh, as well? Yeah, I mean, you look at um, so we're we're investors in the Advantage Fund, um, Jeremy Pressman and Alex Bente's fund. Um, what I think their advantage is over us is the investor base, right? They have some phenomenal investors from the Adidas Ventures Group um, to prominent families that are in in sort of invested throughout all areas of sports. And they get to lean on those LPs and they get to, to get their feedback and, and connections and networks and, and all of those other things. So I think they do have a, you know, a pretty tremendous advantage using the pun and words intentionally um, over what we do. But we do have a little bit more flexibility and sort of nimbleness in that our IC is three people. Um, we get to, to make decisions fairly quickly. We also get to lean on the just phenomenal business experience and judgment of our IC. So I think where in some cases the IC is sort of the, the hindrance or the, the sort of gating uh, function, for us it's, it's actually very additive in that we get to lean on, again, some of the, the, the top people in business who have the reps and have the business judgment to make decisions, even if it's not an area of specialty for them. You know, they have the pattern recognition where they can make decisions very quickly um, based upon you know, a fairly limited set of facts. So to us, we think that's a pretty strong advantage on, on our end. That's cool. And um, Paul, just going back to what you were talking about with with Bournemouth uh, before, and sort of like the commercial opportunities, I think it's it's fair to say that in the past few years, we've seen a lot of US based ownership groups coming into the Premier League, often with a bit of like, "Hey, we can do this better." And there are a lot of things that you know US sport can bring into into UK sport and do it better. But also, that's not always been plain sailing either. 
are there particular things that you look at Bournemouth and you go, actually, no, this is where we can add a lot of value, is it in terms of, I mean, the stadium's pretty small, right? There's only so many people you can actually get into that stadium. Um, but are there particular things that you go, actually, no, we can think we can really help to add a lot of value here? Yeah, I mean, I think from different, a couple of different perspectives. One is, I think we we understand, you know, being a, although my accent does not give it away anymore, being a British football fan, I think that perspective is incredibly important. I think, like you said, there, there has been, in some instances, a case of ignorance or arrogance or a combination of the two from American investors who come in and think our way is better and therefore we'll just put our blueprint in. And I don't think you can... You don't think you can do that in that you have to understand, and, and this is sort of my background, right? It kind of pervades everything that I've done is really consumer-based, understanding who the consumer is of the product and what their needs are and what it means to them. Um, so I think we bring that perspective, which is, which is very important. You can't just come in and suddenly raise ticket prices across the board, raise concession prices without a full understanding of sort of the way to do that in an additive way, which I think... Jim Frivola, the president of, uh, of AFC Bournemouth, is really trying to do a good job of selling the story of the why behind some of those things so they can understand, listen, we have to, we have to figure out how we get more people into matches in a small stadium to prove out the business case for us to build a bigger stadium. So that's why you, you used to maybe able to be, go to every single match, uh, including the, the cup games and, and away matches. Now we need to cycle more people through to prove that there's a big enough demand. And by the way, we're doing that so we can make a new stadium so we can build this club to be bigger and better for the city of Bournemouth. So that narrative is very important. I think the other thing is the U.S. market is extremely untapped in terms of football fandom. You know, Tyler Adams couldn't be a better signing for the club to really build a fan base in in the U.S. and figuring out ways in which they can build their uh, exposure to the U.S. market. Obviously, you know, the Golden Knights are a phenomenal asset for them to have uh, here in the U.S. and sort of building out how they create awareness for Bournemouth, which is, you know, traditionally a, a smaller club that hasn't had international penetration, even domestic penetration, right? And so now you have an opportunity to really build, start building a global brand around the club. I mean, hey, look, Bournemouth was always, it's the first picture I always look for. You either want, you want it away in either... <laughs> sort of august september april, or april, april may, may. Yeah. not tuesday night away in february <laughs> exactly <laughs> talk, to, to to your point about being the first or second call talk a little bit about how that deal came about and how you got the opportunity to look at uh black knight um and uh and how that conversation happened because you know you you think about american investment coming into the premier league and that you know usually you think about the big six or the big clubs and, um, you know, uh, big cities with untapped potential, um, you know, Birmingham city, for example, where, where, you know, people see an, an opportunity to come in and invest and sort of, you know, uh, build, build up. But Bournemouth doesn't necessarily fit that model. So talk about how it came together and kind of what, what appealed to the, to the IC uh, from that approach. I'll start with sort of more the macro perspective around why football and why the Premier League, because I think that's A, it's an important component, and B, the way that we got to Bournemouth is less sort of quantitative in nature mm -hmm. um, and more relationship-driven, so it makes us seem like we were just being opportunistic, but there was a lot of work that was done beforehand in football itself, why football was, we thought, one of the, the, the best investment opportunities globally, mm -hmm. uh, why the Premier League and the, the I think the 
the massive rights growth that, that we believe is potential uh, has potential in Premier League, even though it's already at astronomical levels. I think there's a lot more to be done, especially on the international stage. And then the way that it actually came about, um, we were diligencing another uh, investment opportunity with the club um, in the Premier League. We flew into London. I've known Jim Frivola, who's the president of AFC Bournemouth for 12 years, and literally just Actually, it was actually, after meeting Charlie, we went from meeting with Charlie to uh, to a pub just to meet up with him to socialize. I mean, I hadn't seen him. The last time I saw him was in the middle of the pandemic. He was the only person at my wedding uh, in Vegas. We, my wife and I eloped to Vegas in the height of the pandemic. He was working for the Golden Knights at the time. And he came over to our hotel room was was the entirety of our wedding party. So um, I hadn't seen him since then. We went to go get a beer. Uh, we were very firmly committed to moving uh, on with another investment into a Premier League team. Uh, that ended up not happening. Jim and I stayed in contact. Obviously, there's tremendous similarities between Bill Foley, who's the majority owner of AFC Bournemouth and, and Black Knight, and, and Pat Ryan. And so uh, we just kept talking. They asked us if we would be interested in looking um, at them when, when the other opportunity fell through. And the more we talked, I think there were several components that interested us. One, there's an opportunity to build, right? There's a lot of work that needs to be done at AFC Bournemouth, and they wanted our involvement. They actively wanted us to be involved, our portfolio companies to be involved, and they really wanted to sort of uh, understand that, that as a team, we would, be, we would be better than them individually. So that checked a pretty significant box. Bill Foley, again, the way that we look at investments is truly around people, and Bill Foley has wanted most of the things that he's done in his life. Uh, and he's done that through hard work and hiring the the right team and people around him. That very much fits our sort of ethos as a, as a company and also the Ryan family in general. And then they're thinking in theories around the multi-club operation that they're building. We really like that. And so those those factors all combined, we decided to move ahead. Awesome. So talk a little bit, you, you, you touched on this about um, you guys all being operators and really understanding the, understanding the business from the inside out, um, not just as investors. Uh, you yourself, as you said, you come from, uh, you've done a startup, you've come from, uh, uh, from Coca-Cola as well, where you ran all the, uh, marketing and partnerships. How, how did that journey come about? How did you get into becoming a sports investor and looking at rights and looking at new sports technology companies and trying to determine what the, what the next big thing was? Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not entirely linear, which I think probably <laughs> it never is the is. reason why. Yeah, exactly. But I think that's also the part of the reason why, right? I mean, I think that's, that's I think part of the, the, hopefully the value that I bring to Ryan Sports is that I do have ex- exposure and experience across multiple different areas. I, I think I have to blame most of this on Ted Leonsis. And for those people who, who are listening, who may not be aware of Ted is a uh, senior person at AOL, uh, ran AOL, uh, went on then to build Sports Empire in DC, uh, where he owns the Capitals, the Mystics, the Wizards. There's, I think there's eight teams now in his portfolio. They own the buildings that they play in. Uh, they bought the RSN. He's truly built sort of this entire sports ecosystem in DC. Uh, he's also one of the nicest people that I've ever met and has been very helpful to me throughout my career. But he was trying to recruit me for a, for a role while I was at Coca-Cola within his organization. What he gave me was this pretty abrupt, if not and or rude statement where he said, Paul, you don't matter at Coca-Cola and you're never going to matter at Coca-Cola. And knowing how nice of a person Ted is, I sort of taken aback and he saw that on my face and said, let me explain uh, in sort of classic Ted way. He said, when I was at AOL, um, you know, I ran the business. I went back five years later 
And I was sitting in the building that I believe had his name on the outside of the building. And he had 30 minutes before his meeting and he thought, oh no, I'm going to get bombarded. People are going to be coming up to me nonstop. And not a single person noticed him. And he sat in that lobby for 30 minutes and nobody noticed he was even there. The machine had gone on. So even though he was such an integral part of the business, once a company reaches that scale, you're somewhat fungible, right? You become a commodity where you really can plug and play. And someone, the next person in the job may not do as good of a job. They may do half as good of a job, um, but they, they still will do that job and the, and the machine will tick on. So he sort of said, your life has to be about more than that. It has to be about leaving a legacy, building, creating. And I'd had that entrepreneurial itch from, a, from an early age. I, again, started a company with Chris Cooley of the Washington, uh, now the Commanders. I'd left, had gone to Coca-Cola. Prior to that, I was a corporate attorney for seven or eight years at big firms in DC and New York. And that sort of started eating away at me, this notion of you have to, there has to be something bigger purpose about your business life. And so I was given an opportunity to join a family office based out in New England um, to help grow rugby in this country, essentially. So the the vehicle was set up to bring capital into the league and the teams within the league. And then also sort of best practices and experiences. And so through that experience, after leaving Coke, really cut my teeth and learned from, you know, he was a very successful biotech uh, venture capitalist, learned a lot about the way that he approached deals, both on the sports tech side, on the media side, we created the first uh, OTT platform for rugby, for the league, and then also acquiring teams. So really got to sort of cut my teeth on a lot of these areas. And then from there, went on to, uh, to, to join the Ryan family to, to do this. And how did, how did that experience specifically around the, the, the rugby venture, and I'm fascinated with this, right, inform your view of the market? Because rugby's been one of those sports that's kind of been at, at, a, at a tipping point in the U.S., you know, for, for, for a while now. The sevens team has done really well. The 15s has managed to compete at several levels. Um, there have been efforts, you know, by, by major players. AG got involved, and, uh, you know, there's, a, there's, there, there's been a, a bunch of different pushes. It hasn't quite gotten there, but it seems to have been growing slowly in the same way that soccer grew slowly. And suddenly it seems like now in the past four or five years, there's been a big tipping point. So how, how, how has that experience kind of helped bring your, um, bring your operational experience full circle in order to be able to contribute into the portfolio companies and the understanding of the market and the growth factors that contribute to success? Yeah, it's, it's, it was a fascinating sort of case study for me um, in that it truly is about the consumer, right? Everything that we do, and so you think about sports as a business, I think people look at the quantitative data, i.e. The, the economics of the sports business. And if you look at it on a P&L, you would look and say, media is the most important thing. It is the predominance of the revenue, right? And then you've got some sponsorship and then you've got game day activities and they sort of tack on. And then collectively that then gives the valuation and if there's enough demand and there's scarcity, then that drives the franchise valuation. So you can kind of look at it at a very analytical, if you're a management consultant, investment banker, private equity guy, you can look at that and say, I've got it. Hmm. The problem is that the product are people, right? The, the actual product of sports hmm. are none of those things. The product are the fans. The fans drive each one of those things. The fans drive the media values. So the fans are the ones that actually tune in and want to watch this thing. The fans are the ones that are in the stands. The fans are the ones that the sponsors want to reach. So it's a person, people-driven business. And if you forget that element and just try to apply a fundamental business approach to it, you end up failing 
10 times out of 10. I think if you look at startup leagues that have come to market in the last, call it 10 years, I can tell you which ones are going to fail. And I did while I was at Coke. Pretty much everyone that came across my desk had the same thing. We're going to get a media rights deal in year two. We're going to get sponsorship in year one. And then we're going to be worth a bazillion dollars and we're all going to be sitting on our boats in France. If you don't have, in my opinion, a minimum of 30 to 40% of your budget in years one through three as a startup sports league in marketing, I know you're going to fail because you're not going to actually build the truly important part of sports, which are the people, it's the fans. The fans are the, are the business. Um, and if you don't have a fundamental understanding and just put a purely economic or financial perspective to this, that, that to me is, is when you're going to lose. And, and that was really very, very evident um, in my time in rugby is that if you try to apply a traditional sports business model to really a ground up D to C business, i.e. it's hand to hand winning over a person at a time to become fans, to take a look at your sport, right? To give you 30 seconds of their time to learn what rugby mm. is. That's challenge number one. And it's one of the hardest challenges out there because I've got to pull you away from Fortnite. I've got to pull you away from Netflix. I've got to pull you away from going to the beach for you to give me 30 seconds of your time for me to explain that there's a new sport called rugby and here's what it is. And here's why you should learn more. Mm. And so you guys still believe in the value of rights though, and in ownership of rights as well as sort of the, the, the tech improvement. Talk about the sort of view that you have of the addressable market and kind of how you can get those people and convert them into fans in order to make those rights worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, for traditionally established sports, Premier League, for example, there is already a massive machine that is going that you can tap into and you can be additive towards. I think on the startup side of things, the way that you get people in is you have to meet them where they are, right? And it's, it's the number one thing of just traditional consumer marketing. What are their current passion points and interests? Where are they spending their time? And how can I meet them there? And how can I make their life better by virtue of me being in those places that they like to spend time? Um, my, my old boss at Coke used to tell a great story about, he was at, um, a, a music festival that will go unnamed and he was walking to, from seeing his favorite band across to another stage to see his second favorite band. And in the middle was a car company and the car company came up to him and started yelling at him about the features of their car. He was in this mindset of going from this euphoric thing of seeing his favorite band play live. He was then transitioning mentally and somebody's yelling at you about something that in another instance could have actually been very welcomed. I may want to, if I'm looking in the market for a new car and I'm, I've got my two kids with me and someone's telling me about another car option that could actually make my life easier, that may be welcomed. In that moment, it wasn't. Had they understood that mindset and had they instead said, hey, you're trying to get from A to B, let me give you a ride. And while I'm giving you that ride and making your life better and expediting your journey from the two things you love, I can have the, the sort of license or validation to, to, to tell you some things about this car. Then that would have built upon his experience. But instead, because <laughs> he, he you know, very publicly states, I'll never buy that car brand ever again. It ruined such a magical moment for me by yelling me about something that I wasn't ready to receive at that moment. So to me, that's always stuck out of like, let's figure out where people are, what their passion points are. And then let's figure out how what we're trying to get them interested in can be additive to their lives. Um, people are consuming very differently today, right? People, young people, 19 to 29, 
the majority of which aren't, aren't watching full matches anymore. They're not watching full games. They're watching highlights. They're watching abbreviated uh, versions of games. They're following statistics. They're playing the video games. They're following the social media. They're following the shoulder programming. It doesn't mean they're less intense about sports. They're just consuming differently. So let's figure out where they are, what's interesting to them, and let's figure out how we can then either build technology to help facilitate them falling in love with new sports or new teams, um, or let's let's figure out ways in which we can create content that can can appeal to them in a way that they want to receive it. To to that end, what are you guys seeing, and or what do you foresee in terms of what you just talked about? Right, uh, traditional sports model is media rights drive the you know seventy five percent of it. There's another you know, there's another X percent that's sponsorship, and if you're the league, you get some uh, some some sharing. If you're a team, you get ticketing and hospitality on top of that. But it's it's media rights that are the big the big the, the as as my ex professor used to say, the straw that uh, stirs the drink of the of the sports industry, right? But the consumption patterns are changing, and like monetization hasn't quite caught up with that, and yet we're still looking at potentially record record cycles for the Premier League, record cycles for the NBA coming up. Um, but that's got to be a shifting landscape. What are you guys looking at? How are you seeing it? Um, and, and what are you forecasting both for your teams and for your portfolio companies, which actually are looking to benefit from, uh, from that change in technology? Yeah, I think it's a major problem that people are perhaps not fully willing to accept at this stage because there's too many people getting very rich off the traditional model. I also think it's going to take much longer than a lot of people expect. So I think those two things can both actually live together and they're not competing statements. I was speaking to someone, I was at the, the Powerhouse uh, Capital uh, Investor Summit over the weekend and speaking to somebody from the entertainment world. And they were talking about, they were just recently at a, at a large summit where everyone was talking about the entertainment industry. And it was the same conversation they were having 10, 12 years ago about the switch to streaming and they're still trying to figure out how it should look and how you could build a business model around it. Nothing's really changed in that 10 to 12 years. Sports is on the tail end of that discussion because sports has become the last appointment television for linear television, right? So they've, they've been sort of isolated or insulated and they're, you know, you look at the top 100 television shows, live or television, watch television shows in the U.S., I think 98 out of the 100 are sports and 90 of those are the NFL, right? It's, it's the last bastion of true linear advertising. Sports has been insulated, but it's not impervious to it. It's, it's going, they're going to suffer the same fate that the entertainment industry is going through right now. It's just going to be delayed. And in that time, there'll be solutions. The entertainment industry is frantically trying to figure out what they do more broadly. The sports industry will, will sort of have the benefit of watching some of that. But I also think that, you know, for mm. new leagues that are coming up, you can't build your business reliant on that. I think if you get it, that's great. But you should think about the other opportunities that are available for a business that is able to aggregate large groups of people, which is what leagues and teams are, right? They're, they're a community of like-minded people. And if you can think about other revenue opportunities, whether it's D2C commerce, whether it's other live events that you're building... There's a whole host, whether it's content and media that you're creating yourself and you're, you're um, thinking about building you know, media networks, Ted Leonsis, the team buying the local RSN. I think there's going to be things like that that are going to be increasingly done as people become less reliant on 
the big drivers of um, economic value for sports traditionally. The NBA, the NFL, there's these powerhouses that are going to be the last to possibly fall, right? These are humongous businesses that are always going to last. If you are a secondary, tertiary, further down the long tail of sports leagues, you can't be relying on those because those deals are going away, right? Like they're mm-hmm. going away faster than, than anything else. And so you have to be thinking about where does, your, where does your monetization opportunities come from if you can truly aggregate large groups of people? Yeah, it's fascinating. I've been on the cold face of some of this for a while, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting to see how the industry is starting to look at um, new properties in a very, very different way. Because exactly like you say, you can't come in and start saying, oh, we're going to have you know X amount of millions within three years through broadcast deals, because everybody knows that's not the case. You know, Broadcasters know that new properties are going to come in and be asking for reach, yep. whereas you need to find other methods of monetization. So with with that in mind, what are you guys looking at as sort of the elements or the trends that you want to be investing in and that you want to be seeing um, uh, seeing investment opportunities in? Because that's where you see the opportunity growth. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a couple of different areas. One is this changing landscape, right? It's creating a whole new way of doing business because you're reaching people in different ways. So one of our companies that we have in common uh, tag board, obviously, mm-hmm. they are facilitating the ability to have alt streams in a way that the traditional production graphics industry could never do previously, right? It just wasn't possible to create that many alt streams using traditional graphical interfaces. So there's a whole industry of businesses that are being created on the new way people are consuming content. And that's really fascinating and interesting to us. And there's there's several companies in our portfolio from Tagboard to Quintar that are all thinking about the different ways in which people are now consuming content. And I think that's, that's probably, you know, one of the hottest areas that we're we're looking at right now. Um, I think new growth areas, I I feel a little bit cliche saying this at this point, which is a a good thing. Um, But I've been sort of banging the drum since 2016 when we, when we first signed uh, the U S women's national team, women's sports just has incredible tailwinds right now. It is a, it is, and I say that because the data is there to support it. It's not from an equity perspective. It's not from a fairness perspective. It's not thinking about the next generation of girls that can grow up with role models. Those things are essential, but that's not the reason for doing this. There are massive swaths of fans, including myself, that love watching women's sports as sports, right? And, and that is irrefutable. It's, it's very hard to challenge people's perspectives because the media has not been there to support this to date. And so what you've had is you had anywhere as low as 4% of total sports media coverage being allocated to women. So people don't think it's a big deal. But I can tell you going to NWSL matches, it is a really big deal. They are filling stadiums. Uh, you can see it in college spaces with filling out U.S. American football college stadiums for volleyball games. You can see it in soccer matches in Spain, in the U.K., in the U.S. It is a massive business that has been severely underserved. And so that's an area that that we are very bullish on and think that there's tremendous opportunities there. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it, it's very much something that's shared. Just as a personal story, I remember we uh, uh, over the summer with the with the women's FIFA Women's World Cup, um, I organized a viewing party for the family to watch England play against Spain, um, and worked with the um, 
my childhood friend who owns a local taverna on the beach. So we played it and we just thought we'd take up a corner of the, you know, just a corner of the restaurant and, and, and you know, kind of watch it with a couple of the other, um, I'm not, well, I am now British, but didn't grow up here, but a couple of the other British families uh, who were there within 20 minutes, we had something like 50 people sitting there watching, ordering beers, you know, kind of watching it and following it and being like, oh yeah, there's a really good match, which it was, it was a really good match. Um, and so you can tell just anecdotally, the, the, the appetite is there. If people on a beach in Greece who have nothing to do with either team come and watch it and follow it, it's just there. It's just there for the growth, isn't it? And there for the taking. So, exactly. um, a couple of, a, a couple more, um, quick hits before we, uh, before we yeah. have to let you go. Um, what is, uh, what is, if, if, if you look in your crystal ball, uh, and you kind of forecast what the, um, next big trends are going to be uh pick pick one or two out for us and tell us what you're seeing uh whether it's you know bounce back from the uh slight bear market or whether it's a specific technology that's going to be really really integral in the growth of uh of monetization in sports or whatever it might be yeah i mean i think a couple of different areas so i'd say one is and i think you have to talk about this at this point I think people have avoided it, but it's it's you can't avoid it in any business. The use of AI is is really going to truly revolutionize every aspect of business in general, right? But specifically the sports tech industry. We're investors in in a joint venture with uh, the Big Ten um, in a company called Boost that uses sort of AI to generate coverage of sports for all the leagues and sports within inside the Big Ten. Um, you know, the Big Ten has a staff of four people really to write. Um, content on behalf of each of the sports at each of the schools within the big 10, they're able to generate, you know, the equivalent of 10 to 20 times that amount of riders um, by having, you know, AI create content uh, on each of those sports based upon the data inputs that they're collecting. There's just massive, massive growth ahead um, for businesses like that. And so I think that's, that's one area that you just kind of have to always flag when you're thinking about what the next five years is going to look at in any business. Um, I think independent of sports, but, definitely uh, within the sports industry. The other is we've spent a lot of time, especially in sports tech, thinking about the collection of data, but the representation or the display of that data and the use of that data and turning that data into actual information that is actionable. I think there's a lot of, lot of areas for growth um, in that space. Um, you know, there's several companies that we're, that we're investors in, uh, Sportable being one that's in my mind, the leading trackable ball and player technology and doing it with sort of close to zero latency between the two. It's portable. It's got all the things that you need from a collection standpoint. But their big focus now is how do we turn that into really usable information for the networks, for the gambling companies, for officiating? That That is the, the massive pivot um, that I think you're going to see in that space is, you know, Quintar is another great example. Taking all of this data and actually turning it into something we can use um, I think is 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 probably the, the the next big thing over the next couple of years. Paul, just want to jump in on the, the bit about um, AI that you mentioned there. One of the things that we've been saying seeing at the moment, and this is not just within sports space, but anything that has AI normally at the moment is driving a, an incredible valuation, right? And it's a very hot area. But from your perspective as a as an investor, and obviously you've got some strategic imperatives there as well. But how driven by valuation are you like what's the point at which you're just going that's just crazy i'm walking away from this this is this is this isn't uh i can't get a return on this what how do you look at those sorts of calculations 
if it is an AI company, I think you fall into that trap, right? I think it's, you know, replace Web3 with AI and you've got the same sort of irrational valuations that occur. And there's probably five trends prior to that. You can plug in different buzzwords. So if you're going to market as an AI company, I think, unfortunately, a lot of them know it's sort of the zeitgeist of the time right now and that they can, they can try and attract, um, you know, accelerated valuations. To me, what's more interesting about AI is how does each one of our non-AI companies utilize AI in the creation of their businesses? So if a company leads with it and that is the sort of central piece of their business, I think you're going to fall into that trap. And I think, I think frankly, I think investors are, are at this point probably reluctant to, to fall into the same line of thinking they were two years ago around Web3. I think that enough people have been burnt. There's enough sort of recency. Um, but it's how does every other business think about And listen, AI, although it's a buzzword, is nothing new, right? It's data with a software layer that are using algorithms to predict outcomes, right? It's, we've been doing that in various forms since Big, Big Blue or whatever the name of the IBM computer that the one at chess was, right? I mean, like this has happened for a long time. It's not that there's just something novel and new. But I do think that the applicability to every business has drastically changed over the last, call it two years. Um, And so how do you integrate that into your ongoing business versus creating a standalone AI company that I think probably does fall into that irrational valuation piece? Just talking on, just another one on valuations. Yeah. Sometimes we're talking to VCs and, you know, we'll take a company to a VC and they'll be like, I know, we're we're only looking at something that's a billion dollar exit, right? We're not interested in anything less than a billion dollar exit. And I sometimes sit there going, really, you turn your nose into a $400 million valuation if you were investing at like 20 or 25? Mm-hmm. Like, that's great, right? Yep. How do you look at those sort of, um, we're only looking at billion dollar valuation type uh, comments? Yeah, I mean, I think you're, you're spot on. I mean, you have to look at like, you realize returns, right? Like the, the timeline to get there. There's so many other factors that are more critical than the billion dollar exit. Um, if I can get in a low entry price and get out at, 400 million in two years versus a billion dollars in seven years. Like it, I think that's just a fairly irrational way of thinking. So we are very focused on um, what we need from a returns perspective, from our investments, the timeline to get there. Um, And again, ultimately backing good fundamental businesses, i.e. ones that are profitable um, with strong management teams. And that to me is, I think far more important than any of these other things, because even if it has a potential to be a billion dollar business, if it is run in a non-fundamentally sound way, i.e. spending money just for the sake, just to grow, um, then that ultimately has a higher risk profile as well. But if you know that you have a cash flow positive business with solid management teams, then your likelihood of success is going to far eclipse um, those other companies that may have a potentially higher TAM but a much lower probability of, of getting there. So in that context, what's your advice to founders? If, if you had one piece of advice to founders who are going into the market looking for, looking for investment, what's your, what would you suggest to them? I think I probably give very strange advice from an investment perspective in that I typically fall back into being an operator. So I say things that are against self-interest. Just take the money that you need, right? Like be realistic. Mm-hmm. Be realistic about what your growth is. Set reasonable milestones for you to achieve and just get just enough money to get you there. Hmm. Uh, there's some great scenes in uh, the, the show Silicon Valley where, you know, he first comes to the realization that 
wait, you don't have to take all the money that VCs give you? They're like, no, you can, you can accept a lower amount. Like to me, that's the number one piece of advice is like, just set reasonable expectations for yourself. Take the money that you need to get to that level, prove yourself in a ideally cash flow positive way. And then if you need more money to, to do something specific, then do it, but don't chase it just because you want to have the flashy series A with star-studded investors that then flames out, you know, six to 12 months later. Sound advice. And uh, the final, the final question that uh, is burning everybody's, everybody's minds is who's going to win the Super Bowl? Who's <laughs> going to win the Premier League and who's going to win Liga? Uh, I would love to know be- that those were selected at random. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I would love to, I would love to, uh, to to list off our three teams in there, but I think we have a little bit more work to do. Um, so um, I'll start with the with the Super Bowl. I mean, I think the the Kansas City Chiefs, if for no other reason that the NFL would love to have Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl, um, one way or so another, I'm sure they, they will exactly. <laughs> so um, yeah, I think the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, Patrick Mahomes just phenomenal talent. Uh, I think what that organization has done is, is, is incredible. Um, Premier league. Um, I've got to go with Liverpool as a, as a lifelong Liverpool fan. Um, the, the, the form that, that they're on uh, what, you know, when Mo is, when Mo is playing the way that he is, I think they're, they're an unstoppable force. So I'm going to, I'm going to back Liverpool. Um, and then uh, in France, got to go with PSG. Yeah, tough, tough to see, tough to see past, uh, past the billions in the bank that they have. Right, um, exactly. Charlie, where are you landing on all of those? Those three. Yeah. Well, Wolves aren't going to win the Premier League as much as I love them to. <laughs> and you're not going to get um, no. There's no point doing anything but PSG. My wife. How about, this, got... how about this one, Char- How about this one, Charlie? Which one wins the Premier League first, Wolves or Bournemouth? Oh. Well, <laughs> as you. As you gave us Gary O'Neill, and thank you very much. Uh, I'll go. For, I'll go for it. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> okay, I'd, I'd take Gary O'Neill uh, every day. So uh, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll go for that one. All right. Well, listen. That's about all the time we have. Just very quickly for our listeners, if you liked what you listened to, please make sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Drop us a rating as well, and uh, and a comment and a recommendation. Um, if you want to, that is, uh, no obligation. Um, please go to our website, sportsloft.co and sign up for our newsletter written in person by Charlie Greenwood himself, um, or at least approved in person by Charlie Greenwood himself. And, uh, please do follow us on socials at sportsloft HQ. All that remains is for me to thank my co-host, the wonderful Charlie Greenwood. Charlie, thanks for being on again. That's great. I mean, seriously, how good was that? I mean, Paul, that was absolutely amazing. Like there's some stuff in there that absolute gold dust for both founders and industry execs. That was super. Absolutely. So very, very, very big thank you to our guest, whom we hope we'll have back very soon. Paul Horgan, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, guys. And and I'll, I will say, Sportsloft in general, from the companies that we have that are involved with it, the value you guys add is, is essential. You have an understanding of the venture world, but more importantly, the operations behind these businesses that is critical to founders. So if, if you are a seed stage series a up and coming sports company get in touch with sportsloft because i really can't speak more highly and, and unfortunately as of right now i don't have any referral fees from charlie for saying this this is just from <laughs> this is just from purely seeing the outcomes for the companies that are involved it's just tremendous value across the line so yeah i'll leave it at that 
there's definitely a steak dinner in it for you next time you're in London. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Well, thank you very much to everybody who listened, and we'll see you next time in the Sports Loft. Goodbye. <laughs>